0: If you would, grab a Bible and turn it to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4. We're returning to Daniel uh, after being in a couple other passages the last couple of weeks with uh, Noah Moore preaching and uh, Kim Harless preaching. It was a joy to hear them and to be served by them. Um, But uh, since we are coming back to Daniel, I just thought I'd do a little bit of a um, kind of a rundown of what we've done. So far. Uh, In Daniel chapter 2, we saw that the wisdom of God in the gospel uh, trumps any wisdom delivered from me, you, and even the best minds amongst us. It doesn't mean we don't have wisdom in the best minds amongst us or that God's wisdom can't be found um, in other places in the world. Uh, That is not true. Uh, It's just that none of the best uh, is trumped by the Lord and his wisdom. Uh, We learned that in chapter 2. In chapter 3, which we uh, concluded on a few weeks ago, uh, we went ahead and saw how the power of God um, is bo- to both judge and to save people uh, was absolute, uh, meaning his power was unmatched in judgment and salvation. Here you had Nebuchadnezzar who thought that he could judge and save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but really in the end it was the power of the Lord who had the power to judge And to save. And so we saw that because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that the best and ultimate power to judge and save resided in the Lord, that actually is what gave them courage. Courage isn't doing dumb things in the face of certain doom. Uh, courage is knowing who is on top of the ultimate throne and knowing who has real power in this world and acting in concert with who has real power and we'll have a little bit of that mixed in with today's uh, message as well but in this chapter um, there's actually a much bigger thing happening Uh, in this chapter we'll see how you and i view god the world and ourselves and the resulting soul's disposition or heart posture Uh, that results. Because that resulting heart posture will always be um, a response to either the gospel's transforming power into a mind led by the spirit or a mind that is led by the flesh uh, with which we are all born. And uh, when I say those two opposing things, the, the life and the heart that's led by the spirit and one that's led by the flesh, I can't help but think of my favorite chapter of the Bible, and that is Romans chapter eight. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, I want to read just a couple passages from it that will help kind of give us some background to keep in our minds as we read through Daniel chapter four. Help us see what's going on here. It says this in Romans chapter eight, verses five through six: For those who live according to the flesh, uh, that part of us that believes it does just fine without God, um, that. part flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh, meaning they perpetuate it. Uh, but those who live according to the Spirit, they set their mind, they perpetuate perpetuate uh, the things of the Spirit. Uh, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and is peace. Uh, these are the truths which you and I uh, are going to be confronted with in today's text through King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's get at it. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how great and mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And we read this text and we just can't help but be taken back a bit. The the original readers were meant to be taken back a bit because it's not like how that Nebuchadnezzar has not said good things about the Lord or said true things about the Lord. It's just that this is so over the top compared to everything else he's ever said. Like this is way over the top compared to all the other truths he has said about the Lord to this point. And as a result, it kind of wants to draw you in and make you curious like what would cause King Nebuchadnezzar to say this and like any kind of good drama it doesn't tell you it's doing this but effectively you could put some subtext below the Bible here and say one year earlier and that's kind of how it goes one year earlier here's how we got to where we're at where Nebuchadnezzar is saying these things this is the story Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Uh, We think this is later in his reign where he definitely was relatively worry-free and definitely prospering. I saw a dream and it made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought to me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, that came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Or maybe they didn't want to make known to them the interpretation, because it's actually pretty obvious if you get down to the dream and what he told them. Verse 8. At last Daniel came in before me, and he who is named Belshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of all the holy gods, I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these— I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of all the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it had food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, probably an angel, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, Now it moves away from the metaphor, and it moves to the person the metaphor stands for. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. If you know the Bible and know how it talks about the the term seven in numerology it basically means uh, the time of completion basically when god's ready for things to happen is what it means Um, so seven times to pass over him the sentence is by decree of the watchers the angels the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most holy high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over even the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel whose name was also Belshazzar. By the way, just so that you understand how he got that name, that was the name that was given when he was taken into captivity as an exile out of, uh, out of Israel and taken into the, the land of Babylon. He was given a Babylonian name. That's what Belshazzar is. He was dismayed for a while. In other words, after he heard what the, the dream actually was, um, it says his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. This is a fascinating thing here. We're already seeing that even he doesn't want to talk about the dream initially. He has to be kind of coaxed into doing it, saying, hey, don't worry about the interpretation. Go ahead and tell it to me. And he's like, man, I know what it means. I just don't want it to mean what it means, is basically what he says. This is a fascinating moment for us just to pause and consider because Nebuchadnezzar, I don't care what you think of any president we've ever had, any leader we have personally sat under in our lives, Nebuchadnezzar is worse than all of them. He's terrible. Um, And so this is a guy who, when you have bad news for him, our most knee-jerk typical reaction would be, I'm going to really enjoy delivering this news. And he doesn't. Daniel doesn't enjoy delivering bad news to a really awful guy. It's fascinating. Tells you a little bit about the heart disposition of Daniel. We'll get into this. I'll actually make another observation about this later on as we get to it. But anyway, just, just consider that like especially as you enter a political season, like someone's gonna be elected and regardless of who it is, I pray that the people of God will be a people who never take joy in other people's harm or other people's suffering or other people's downfall. That we like Daniel have a heart that is sorted out well enough. We know where real power lies. And so we don't look for bad news to unseat bad power in this world. Um, so, with that said, and then, by the way, that doesn't mean you can't vote for the other guy, whoever the other guy is to you, and that doesn't mean you can't also be happy if one of the other guys wins. It um, doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we should always want good for people around us, even our enemies. I think Jesus said something about that, right? Okay, moving on. He says, the tree you saw The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches, the birds of the heaven lived, it is you. You're the tree, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth and bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall come to pass over you until you know, experientially know, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So he tells him the interpretation of the dream. Now he's going to offer some commentary, he's going to make a suggestion. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, break off your sins. By practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity we don't really know the nature of his sins we know he was a bad guy mostly we know he enslaved people we know he took men women and children into exile we don't know what he has in mind here as far as practicing righteousness outside of what the scriptures say. We don't even know what it would look like for him to show mercy to those who are oppressed. We don't even know what he means by those oppressed, and by the way, because the word oppression is used a lot in our culture right now, do not project your own thoughts as far as what you think oppression is on what was going on here in this text, it's always a dangerous thing to to project our modern sensibilities onto ancient texts. I just learned yesterday uh, that one of my children actually feels oppressed by being uh, subjected to music playing while we are cleaning our house. Apparently that associates the music with the cleaning of the house. So um, again, projecting our oppression onto the Bible, always bad. Um, So let's just let the Bible say what it says. Whatever oppression was, that's what he was doing, okay? All right, with that said, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So get this, he tried to talk him out of it. He He said, repent, you know, stop with the oppression. Show mercy to those you oppress. Stop with your sins. Become a man of righteousness. And then it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So he did not take Daniel's counsel. You may wonder, how long did he have to take Daniel's counsel? It tells us, at the end of 12 months. So he had 12 months to consider Daniel's counsel and turn his ways. You and I are not even guaranteed that when the Lord exposes something in us, are we? But he was given 12 months, and the king was walking on the roof of a royal palace of Babylon, and he answered. Who was he answering? He was answering the Lord. He was answering the Lord, the Lord's warning. And this was his answer to the Lord's warning from 12 months ago. He had thought about it, he considered it, and this is his response. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty powers as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. This is the point at which, when you're doing children's sermon, kids are giggling at this point, right? Because they're like, this is a funny picture. And this is the king, the most powerful man of his generation. And then it says, "At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done and at the same time my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me as well my counselors and my lords sought me (laughs) that's interesting they hadn't been looking for him to this point apparently they're just kind of leaving him be but now his reason returns and they seek him And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So I wonder, in this last verse that we just read, the message that God humbles the proud, does that strike you more as a comfort in this moment that you're in? Like that he's gonna take the prideful and he's gonna make Him humble. Does that strike you as a comfort or does that feel more of a warning that you need to consider today? There's no necessarily right answer on that. There's only true answers. It's just a question as to where you are right now. But your dance answer is definitely informative as to how your heart is postured to hear today's message, right? With that said, um, if you would allow me uh, to, would you consider letting me direct your thoughts uh, this morning, I would urge you to consider the message that God humbles the proud as both a comfort for you and a warning for you today. Would you hear the rest of what we speak of in regards to this text as an opportunity to be comforted, but an opportunity for you also to be warned today? Because after all, um, this, was the reason, or this was the way in which the original readers were meant to read it as both an exiled people that took comfort that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't all that, but also understood that in the economy of the flesh, those oppressed generally are just oppressors in waiting. That's the economy of the flesh. You may be oppressed today, but you're looking to oppress others tomorrow. But that is not the way of the Spirit. That is not the way of a person who is compelled and led by the Spirit. In fact, at the root of a heart of flesh, is always a heart of pride deep abiding enslaving pride this was true when human beings were first tempted and took from the fruit of the tree of good and evil and it's true when you and i take from that metaphorical fruit on a regular basis sometimes daily writer and bible scholar tremper longman sums up the idea of pride nicely when he says, Pride in a negative sense is a conception of one's self-worth that exceeds the bounds of propriety. In theological speak, in other words, what that means is when one thinks of oneself as more than God's image. We are God's image. There's a nobility in that. There's a beauty in that. There's goodness in that. It's worth celebrating. It's worth saying. It's worth Believing that is good about you, and about me, and about others. But pride is when we try to live beyond that. I'm more than the image of God. I'm actually either closer than others to the image of God, or I am the consummate image of the God that others should look to. In the way I think, the way I feel, the way I speak, the way I posture thinking of ourselves as more. Augustine knew something about this. In fact, he spoke to the flip side of this, uh, the idea of humility, for that is the opposite of pride. And he understood that a heart needs to be given to humility. In fact, a foundation of humility is a radically different thing and creates radically different results for us. He said it like this, if you plan to build any kind of a house, a tall house of virtues, basically, if you're looking to stand that you know what's, what's worth being called right, true, just, it's like the passage that says to love justice and mercy and walk humbly with your God. You can't actually do what's righteous You can't actually love mercy for what it is until you walk humbly with your God. And this is what Augustine is saying. It's got to be built on the foundations of humility. Humility is the beginning to actually even be able to know, live, speak of, and talk about virtue in any way that makes differences. Augustine knew that all the best human plans and intentions, when backed or supported by a heart of flesh, will in some way still result in the society-wrecking glorification of human beings. It's got to be built on humility, knowing who we are, who God is, and knowing thoroughly the huge gap between those. So let's hear today's text as both a warning and a comfort as we consider its message. And by the way, there are several anchor passages in this text from which we could look at um, these uh, scriptures today, but likely none so powerful as the final verse of chapter 4. I don't know if it struck you this way, but it's just really, really powerful what it says. Look at verse 37 again. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying three things here really. I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. Then he says, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And finally, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Verse 37 is helpful in that it gives us something of an anatomy of pride and humility. It shows us kind of the the makeup of what pride and humility look at look like from differing perspectives. And so here are three important questions that we can derive from these verses or this verse 37 that get to whether our heart is steeped in pride or steeped in humility. And that is the big question today. One, who is in my heart truly worthy of exaltation and praise? Who is truly worthy of exaltation and praise? He says, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Now, of course, before all this transpired for him, he praised and extolled the name of himself, of Nebuchadnezzar. He was what was great. He who built Babylon, he who paid for Babylon, he who conceived of the great Babylon. But here he is confessing, It is the king of heaven who truly is worthy of exaltation and praise. Do we feel, do we live believing that the king of the heavens is truly the one worthy of exaltation, praise, or the king or kings, the many kings to choose from of the earth? Nebuchadnezzar, when he was made to be like an animal, I made point and mentioned that his His best advisors didn't go looking for him. And in fact, his audience fled him. And when you don't have any audience, you realize there's no one praising me. There's no one extolling me. And so in that moment, he realized there's really not a lot to praise and extol about me. But there is a lot to praise and extol about the Lord. Second question, what are the greatest or most prolific truths that you and I believe? In other words what is my truth what is its foundation I mean what's what is my underlying truths I live and believe and confess and where are they founded from I mean just as an example um, of how quickly this can kind of move and go astray uh, all of us know we live in a broken world right I mean the world is broken tremendously broken and that's true and we shouldn't be afraid to say that that's true and to talk about brokenness but just so that you know that's not like the the bottom of the foundation (laughs) you know what the bottom of the foundation is if you know the gospel is that there is a god who repairs broken things that's at the bottom of the foundation and so often we leave people just knowing that we confess that things are broken of course they're broken and we shouldn't be afraid to say that but that's not the best news of the news we have the news is things are broken but there's a God that repairs broken things his ways are just where does the truth that I believe come from is it come from the capital T truth revealer the Lord the Spirit of God or is it the truth maker that comes in the form of the flesh again A part of the garden and the tree of good and evil was that we bit, saying, I can determine what truth is. I can determine what right and wrong is. This is not simply something that happened. It's what happens. It's what we do. And Nebuchadnezzar's truth was shattered. Everything he said was shattered and became untrue in an instant to show that there's a truth that never is Shattered. And there is a God who repairs even him in his broken state. Final question. How do I actually walk and carry myself in the world and with other people? How do I walk and carry myself around in the world and with other people? This is the heart of this last section of verse 37 when he says, those who walk, basically their lifestyle, their posture is one of pride. He is able to humble. And what it's getting after is there are those of us who have deceived ourselves to believe we have the, the right or the amount or the, the proper strategic amount of power or control whereby we can prevent the downfall. Somehow we can we can hedge a protection around ourselves and never and this is this is Nebuchadnezzar saying, I thought I was powerful, then I met the one powerful enough to cause me to fall one powerful enough to take a person of great pride because he was powerful and because he could control so much and can make me humble and he confesses that how do I walk and carry myself in the world and with other people is it the, is it as a person that is spiritually impoverished and needy that the beatitudes speak to it says you know if you're impoverished and needy you're blessed because you know positionally where you stand it has no bearing on the fact that you're a noble person made in the image of God it's not trying to strip that away it's not trying to tear that down it's merely saying even as a noble image bearer of God you are incredibly needy and incredibly impoverished of spirit But that makes you blessed because, again, the greater foundational truth is that God feeds those impoverished of spirit and makes them into new creatures. And so, are we, like in the Beatitudes, blessed with impoverishedness and neediness? Or is it the power obsessed, power impressed mind of the flesh? that we carry again experientially nebuchadnezzar learns this by becoming a lowly creature and remembering that there is one higher than him that humbled him you know these three questions are really helpful for us to consider how we think about ourselves in nebuchadnezzar's dream we see him being exposed for how he really thinks about himself it's not just a vision for what God wants him to see, he's actually showing him a picture of himself. He's like, You are someone who views yourself in a self aggrandizing manner as one that feeds all the earth, who provides shade for all, who basically is this benevolent autocrat or dictator over all. It exposes how he really thinks about himself and the reality of his current role in the world. He saw himself benevolent, probably in a way, not probably, in a way that went beyond the image of God as a king. He was a capital K king in his mind. And if he was an image bearer of God, he was the image bearer of God in a way that the people he looked down upon could not be. And so he stood before the Lord thinking he only stood before gods of his own making and his life was never the same after that going back to verse 37 there are three key issues at hand the first is this and really i'm leading right back out of the questions i just asked you the first is this the question of pride and humility are about who is actually worthy of being praised who is actually worthy of being praised and on the roof while we aren't given any full disclosure as to the details of nebuchadnezzar's inner thoughts his private musings and his internal dialogues just like nobody really knows at the end of the day what's going on in your head a lot of times your private dialogues with yourself your argumentations with silent enemies that get destroyed and slam dunked uh, all the private musings about who you are nobody knows them but as he's thinking these things and saying things out loud in response to the Lord, this watershed moment is telling. It's stimulated by an incredibly false narrative he believed in that Nebuchadnezzar was believing about himself and his world. And by the way, that's not to say his legacy was insignificant. We know Nebuchadnezzar's name in secular history today because he was so significant. He was an amazing Amazing figure in history even if he was a bad dude most of his reign of all the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world two of them he made happen the hanging gardens and the wall the wall apparently where you could actually turn you could turn a four-horse chariot around on it it was so thick and wide two of the great wonders of the ancient world And so he's not a slush. It's not like the Bible is is using a, a really low figure to get this point across. This is a significant figure in history. But yet, even the most significant figures in history oftentimes believe false narratives about themselves and about the world. He thought he was responsible for everything he saw, that he planted, he ordered it, he paid for it. And on a human level, a fleshly level, that's actually true. But what the Lord wants a Nebuchadnezzar to do in that moment is to realize that none of it was made possible were he not being given the stewardship to make it possible and that all glory ultimately was to go to the Lord that is what he wants of all great things men do that the glory would be gained by the Lord and the Lord alone not by man but all of Nebuchadnezzar's plans were not meant For his credit, even though he was taking it, his orders were not meant to be a reason for his praise, but rather the praise of the one who gave him the means to accomplish it. He saw that eventually. The mind of the Spirit directs you and I to ask, what have I done that was not given to me the ability to do? What have I done and accomplished, furthermore, that stands in any way in comparison to the accomplishments of Christ and his gospel? Even great things I've done that, that, that should direct me to the praise of the Father do not hold a candle to the praise he deserves alone for what he did at the cross. Who is worthy of praise? The second issue is about pride and humility being about who is the keeper, purveyor, and determiner of truth. Who is it? Pride says, I am wiser. I'm wiser than you. I know more than others. I have an understanding or a perception that far outweighs others. Oh, it is a slippery slope from there to I'm smarter than God too. Real slippery slope. And it literally is insanity. I mean, he gave, in a very real physiological sense, an insanity to Nebuchadnezzar that matched the insanity of his pride. Some, I don't know who gets credit for this, have said that all sin is insanity theologically. And here's the thing. Um, we can lose our minds and humanity after giving ourselves over to sin too much or worshiping and loving others and other things too much. Um, I wonder, would we know it if it happened? <laughs> I mean, like, I'll get to this later, but, like, it's a grace that basically the Lord slapped him in the face with his insanity, most of us, our insanity is so subtle, so accepted that we don't even notice it. Would you even notice it? Sanity begins with a right understanding of self as a noble creature, absolutely, and a holy God that made the, whole, the noble creature and who is the image on which we were made. And, at right, and right positioning of oneself around the holy God and his wills and his ways. You know while we've been in isolation um, and I, I know most of us aren't in isolation anymore quarantine anymore um, but while we've been in some form of it there has been a lot of isolation a lot of uh, people at home in offices alone no uh, workmates um, I wonder where you go um, do you devolve and spiral into your own thoughts and feelings and troubles and musings or do you find yourself engaging with and submitting to the thoughts of god and the desires that he has for us in the world what's been your go-to in isolation at the beginning of all this when it was all confusing nobody knew what was going on and everyone was just kind of making stuff up as we go along you know i know we were in a lot of ways um, we were just kind of going like we don't know how we've never been confronted with this. so um but i did ask one thing i pleaded one thing i'm like hey this may not be whatever this is it may not be the sabbatical you asked for but it's the one that the lord has given please 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 use the sabbatical to to interface with him a lot pray interface with the scriptures fill your mind with the thoughts and desires of god Use it as an opportunity with sports shut down. Use it as an opportunity with activities shut down. Use it as an opportunity with a lot of things changing in the time we spend to f- fill your heart with the thoughts of God. Um, in my most candid, honest moments, I sometimes wonder how many people actually took that advice. Um... Yeah, uh, a lot of thoughts that came from the inner dialogues that people would have with themselves. I feel like a lot of people did turn in on themselves and are still doing that. Um, Yeah, and I would hope that we would consider today that the truth that we seek is not in us, it's outside of us it's in his revealed scripture it's in the spirit working in and through our lives it's in a prayer times with the lord you go there that's where truth is that's where you'll find it everywhere else there'll be a mix of truth a mix of lies and a lot of deception <laughs> i've heard it said by too many people if you watch fox news if you watch one american network uh, maybe to even yourself out to understand a more broad concept of the world maybe start watching MSNBC or CNN or reading the New York Times Contr- in the uh, converse if you watch listen to MSNBC CNN read a lot of the New York Times maybe you should broaden your horizons watch a little Fox News One American Network um, can I just tell you this is all really bad advice really bad advice um, because all of the above just tends to silo a person with confirmation biases or just gets you angry and brings out your most nasty inner arguments against the other whatever the other is for you sanity is not found in any major news network amen, amen. sanity is found in meditating on the words of the lord that's where sanity is found and so I plead with you again whatever time you've accrued whatever time you have don't spend it in all the ways that continue to devolve you into your own thoughts go outside yourself the thoughts of the Lord I wonder if I were given over to insanity or a depraved mind which by the way is a Romans chapter 1 concept would I know, and would people tell me? Um, because Nebuchadnezzar seemed impervious to it. Uh, the only person who was willing to tell him what was ahead was Daniel. No one else wanted to tell him. I wonder what kind of people we have around us. Final inch issue around pride and humility is who is in control. Who do you really believe holds real power? Real power. Who is in control? Who holds final and ultimate power? Who, who controls and really is writing the narrative, the story of this world? Stewardship is a real thing. You're given many things. Some of us are given power. Some of us are given uh, influence. Others of us are given wealth and riches. Some of us are given poverty, and it is a gift that you're given poverty. Some of us are given multiplicity of things but it's a stewardship we need to see that the real power is the lord's stewardship does not equal control he does not give us toys so that we can exercise control of the world it's a gift to be able to be a truth teller to other people do you know that that's a stewardship you want to know a trend i've noticed in the christian world over especially the last several years Um, the more we've gotten, more we lack tolerance for one another, more we argue and bicker and fight with one another. What I have noticed is, is that people are not satisfied with being a steward of truth to other people. Let me show you how this happens. The Lord gives you an opportunity, you have an opportunity, you speak truth to another person, and you feel good about it. I got it out, I wasn't like the other advisors, I was like Daniel, I spoke truth. But then Nebuchadnezzar in your life doesn't listen to you. Does his or her own thing. Keeps doing his or her own thing. And you just get mad as spit over it. And you get vindicated and angry. You know what's going on there? You're not satisfied with the stewardship of being a truth teller. You want to also be a behavior changer. Well, God didn't let you do that. (laughs) He didn't give that to you. Oftentimes, you will be one amongst many truth-tellers to another person, and until the Lord has seen fit through the seven cycles, they're not going to change. You're just one piece of the story of, we pray another person's repentance. Every time you get mad, every time you get frustrated, it's because you want to be more than the image of God. I don't want you to be a steward. I want to be an owner. I want to be in control. I want to hold the power. I think I hold the power. I should hold the power. They should change. Why aren't they changing? In this way, we've been reduced to acting like the world so often, and it reduces us to less than what we are in the gospel, friends. Let us push against this. Let us be satisfied to do what the Lord stewards us to do and to be thankful that we are allowed to do it and not place ungiven promises, our expectations, out there. Quick observation. And having the correct perspective on who is in control and power, did you notice that Daniel is now freed to view and think of Nebuchadnezzar based on who he actually is? In other words, the other advisors falsely believed he was the ultimate power as far as they were concerned, and they treated him that way. And so they weren't truth-tellers, and they didn't tell him what he needed to hear. But Daniel knew who was really in power. Who really controls things. And because he knew who was in power and controlled things, he's able to actually treat Nebuchadnezzar as a good human being. Not as a good moral human being, but as a human being in a human way. He treated him as a needy, helpless, powerless, hopelessly human to whom he is able to give sympathy and concern the reason why you and i aren't able to give sympathy and concern oftentimes to those we despise those we disdain is because we don't see them as human and we don't see them as human because we see something as a threat a greater power that is not the lord I want to end with two lessons from Nebuchadnezzar that we see, two lessons he learned, and really we're being invited through this narrative, this story, to learn these lessons with him. The first is this God's grace is abundant, is abundant when he exposes and humbles us. So if you're in the middle of being humbled and exposed, congrats! You are engaging God's grace. His grace is being given to you in this moment. Have you done something that you were ashamed of recently? Well, guess what, friends? It's not there for you just to sit in your shame. It's a warning, a merciful, graceful warning, your graceful vision that should lead to repentance and deep change. Again, we pray. Psalm 30, verses 6 through 7, When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Oh, Lord, when you favored me, you made my mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Many people stop there. and They think that this is going to become a lament psalm. But it's not actually it's a psalm of Thanksgiving it's a psalm of Thanksgiving he's going to effectively thank the Lord for dismaying him (laughs) thank the Lord for dismaying him because he understands it was a momentary grace the shame that the author experiences caused him to flee to God again the result is clear if you read on he says, You turned my wailing into dancing, you removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That's not usually how I responded, being dismayed. <laughs> but he saw it properly as a grace. Perspective We are entering or have entered the kingdom of God empty handed. This is a perspective from Nebuchadnezzar that we're being invited to experience with him we entered into the kingdom of God empty-handed beasts that are now transformed into men again we also see that there is a mercy at hand here when Daniel says hey repent do righteous be merciful to the oppressed he's basically taking a step of faith and saying I think this is conditional The Lord isn't necessarily going to do this to you for sure if you repent. So sometimes that exposing and humbling is the beginning of a warning that is conditional upon which we won't receive the full full weight of judgment. That is a mercy, friends. And many and most initial reveals of our true nature, how we view reality. And how that's exposed is but an opportunity to turn and change it, to give glory to God, to walk the path of Christ likeness or to walk the path instead, if we rebel like Nebuchadnezzar of beast likeness. And we learn that Nebuchadnezzar was given 12 months to make his choice or respond to the conditional warning. Again, you and I aren't necessarily given that. And so when a warning comes, take it as a grace and do what is right. Repent, do what's righteous. What is and has been revealed here this grace and mercy of revelation about his heart what is being revealed in this moment about your heart the lord has brought to the table this morning it is an opportunity for god's glory it's an opportunity for the enemy's defeat and a change for your good a transformation for your good believe that this morning In fact, collectively, I wonder if the Lord is doing something profound and impactful both in and through the church in this moment in history, because just to be candid, we've been pretty comfortable for a really long time. Not so comfortable right now, are we? And that may be a really, really good thing. So going forward, maybe consider how this is a blessed, graceful time that we're in, and we are to take our cues from that. By the way, I just know that some of you probably are at the end of your rope in an area of your life or you or a part of your life is effectively uh, that metaphorical stump. It feels like a stump, like there's only a stump of my life left. If that's you. Um, stump does not have to mean hopelessness. The stump in this story is a reminder of hope, actually, that life can be had after this new life. So we either pursue humility, or we will be humbled by He who humbles even kings. Second thing, and I'll end on this: that um, Nebuchadnezzar learns that we can walk in as well. Oftentimes, we may be confused about what really is at play between the subject of pride and humility. What's really the difference maker here? Well, Nebuchadnezzar learned it's about my eyes. (laughs) It's about my eyes and where they're directed. C.S. Lewis said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see anything above you. It's about your eyes. It's about where you fix them, what you look on, what you focus on. Some are accustomed to looking down on others. It's just a way of life for them. It's just their walk of life. They may think they're smarter than other people, and so they look down on people. They're more powerful than other people, so they look down on the powerless. They think that they have something figured out that others aren't, so they're cultural elitists who think the commoners are worth looking down on. Do you ever have to be right about everything? The gospel corrects this in us. I don't have to be right more than I need to show Jesus as better. I don't have to be right to show Jesus as better. And lest I read my Bible, that is the gospel message we're to bring. (laughs) Not that I'm right and I need to convince you that you're wrong but that Jesus is better than any ideas I have or you have. <laughs> Where are your eyes? Are they on yourself? Or are they on all that you've done? Or maybe what you have not done. Some people's eyes are on what they haven't done. You see, true humility isn't that I am nothing. That's not true humility. But that he is everything. <laughs> That's humility. True humility is not that I can do nothing, I can do nothing right, but in Him I can do all things. That's true humility. Looking down at yourself, being sorry for yourself, that is every bit as prideful as thinking you're all that. Because of the eyes and where they're at, they're on me. It's about your eyes. So restoration does not happen by our prominence, us being ushered back to health and wealth uh, and, and prosperity like, like, like Nebuchadnezzar was. He was, but that's not the definition. It's not going the opposite direction and becoming an ascetic and denying ourselves, denying our flesh, denying everything about ourselves. But by looking to Christ, whether in our lowliness or our prominence take our eyes off Christ is to take our eyes off the only means of our exhortation the only contribution you and I have ever made our own greatness and glory is and was our utter neediness before Christ that's all we contributed is our neediness our exaltedness and our humility is sourced from Jesus's exaltedness out of his humility as he lived in the flesh not in being restored to some prior greatness or some ideal self so let us much like he urged his disciples and that disciple who walked on the water let's keep our eyes to jesus that is the path to humility the pathway to pr- away from pride